welcome to the Forge Leadership Podcast. In this week's edition, Simon Barrington, founder and director of Forge, interviews Malcolm Duncan about his leadership experiences and issues of character and identity in a leader. Today I'm joined on the Forge Leadership Podcast by the Reverend Malcolm Duncan. Uh, Malcolm's a senior pastor of Gold Hill Baptist Church, a large and thriving church in Chalfont St Peter. He was previously the chair of Spring Harvest and the leader of FaithWorks. Uh, Malcolm says he's passionate about the importance of Christians being good news people and about the importance of preaching, serving, advocacy, prayer and partnership. Uh, Malcolm, welcome. Thanks, Simon. It's good to be with you. Great. Malcolm, you've provided leadership to many large organisations and networks over the years and are recognised as a key leader in the evangelical community across the UK and wider afield as well. Uh, When did you realise that you had leadership gifts? I think the, the, the honest answer to that question is long before I was a Christian. Um, I think that I was born the youngest of five children in Northern Ireland. And um, from a very early age, I had this sense or this passion of wanting to make a difference and knowing that if I was to make a difference, then I would have to bring people with me. So as a little boy, playing in school, in secondary school, when I went to that and university, I always had a sense that people gathered around me for one reason or another, mm-hmm. and looked to me for advice or guidance or, or something. So I think if that is one of the ways in which you discern that you are a leader, I've had that almost all my life. So it was that kind of passion to bring transformation, to change things that initially well, stirred it in I, you? I think it's more than that. I think I think... Certainly my, my leadership or my life is is grounded in a desire to make a difference. Richard Baxter, the great Puritan, once uh, said, live life so as to be missed. I had that inscribed on the back of one of my iPads, my first iPad. But I think it's more than that. It is, if one is aware that you one wants to make a difference in the world, then the next obvious question is, and, and what is the most effective way of doing that? And for me, the most effective way of doing that was bringing as many people as I could with me and therefore being able to influence them. And that has to be at least partly a definition of leadership, being able to influence others to go in the direction that you believe is right. Mm. And what were some of your earliest experiments in doing that? Oh, gosh, I can um, I can remember as a as a as a little boy starting a drama club in my street and making all of my friends come along to it. <laughs> um, I can remember, you know, and I'm talking about before I was 10. Um, in secondary, in grammar school, I won, I won a scholarship to a, a school in Belfast. And um, I, I was the only boy that went there that lived in the council estate that I lived in. So it was immediately like a stuck out like a sore thumb. Yeah. And, um, starting a little society in that that was about challenging injustice and prejudice in Northern Ireland and getting people involved in that. Joining the debating society and winning debates mm-hmm. by being weird people with my arguments and and the things that I felt were right. And then as a, as a young teenager getting involved in something called uh, the Peace and Reconciliation Interschools Movement in Northern Ireland called PRISM yeah. and, and ending up becoming one of the leaders of that. They were all early forays into leadership. I was in the BB, the Boys Brigade, okay. as a young boy and ended up leading a group in that. Um, we sh- we share that together, interestingly. Uh, <laughs> that was I, one I, of my I, first experiences as well. I think uniformed um, uniformed clubs and uniformed groups for children are brilliantly, brilliantly able to draw out the best in people and are seriously overlooked or neglected now. Mm. 
And were there some early mentors for you who came around you and helped shape and form uh, your leadership approach? In one sense, my eldest brother who died last year was always a kind of hero of mine. His name was Colin and he was a journalist. He was always able to, he was always able to articulate himself well. Mm. And as I grew up, there were 13 years between him and me. I always wanted to be like him. Mm. He was definitely a role model for me. Mm. And then in primary seven, which is the equivalent to year six here in the United Kingdom, my teacher was a man called Mr. Piddington. And he took a real interest in, in me. There were 35 people in our class. And of the 35, 34 got in the top 50 um, 11 plus results in Northern Ireland. Mm. And that coming out of the context that we were in was incredible. Mm. He was a huge mentor. And then teachers really were my mentors. Mm. Uh, uh, a guy called Eamon Foster in the school that I went to um, was a real inspiration to me. So there were some early mentors there. Then when I became a Christian, I found my mentoring, I became a Christian at 16, and I found my mentoring of leadership in reading very old books by people long since dead, like wow. Spurgeon or John Owen or Richard Baxter um, or Tozer or um, D.L. Moody or R.A. Torrey. They all became very strong mentors in the formation of what I understood to be a leader who was a Christian and led out of Christian values. It's incredible, isn't it? I mean, Hudson Taylor was for, formative in my leadership development as I read his stories of taking the gospel into China. And I think it's often uh, neglected and oversight that actually these historical figures who have so much experience can, can be mentors to us as well. Most of the mentors that I um, had at that point, and still many today, are dead. Um, you know, or, or are people that I have um, never known personally, but have learned from immensely. And I think there's something very powerful in having traveling companions in leadership that speak principles of Christian leadership out of a different culture, sometimes out of a different era. And yet when you test what they say, those values and principles by which they have kind of marked their own leadership still work. Watchman Nee is another example for me. And there are women too that have deeply shaped my leadership. Jackie Pullinger, um, who I now know, and her journey into um, China and Hong Kong and her risk-taking. Um, Gladys Aylward, uh, Mary Slesser. Some of these uh, folk have had a huge impact on me. And I still return to them, you know. When I think about particular issues of leadership, it's often people that are, were writing from a different context, like Jackie or people who have long since died and were writing out of a completely different culture that I turn to and they help crystallize the challenges that I'm facing because of their excellent connection with God and the brilliant principles of leadership they live by. So yeah, reading <laughs> as a leader is vitally important, isn't it? I read a, I read a website page. I read a website page recently which was rather discouraging and it said any effective CEO needs to read at least 120 books a year. <laughs> <laughs> The website was then going on to suggest that they could help you do that by giving you a five-minute pricey so you could read a thousand a year. So there was a bit of uh, commercialization in there, I think. <laughs> and uh, talking of books, I mean, how's the Bible um, informed your approach to leadership? Well, of course, the fundamental inspiration for me as a leader is the Lord Jesus. Um, his servant-heartedness, his decisiveness, his willingness to confront, his truth-telling, his honesty 
his singularity of purpose and focus, his collaborative nature to leadership, uh, all of those. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't have those without scripture. And for me, I have a very high view of scripture. When I was first converted, God gave me a hunger to read the Bible, which has never left me. And I still believe it to be the inspired and infallible word of God. So for me, it is the ultimate book that shapes and fashions the character of a leader, the secret life of a leader, the intentionality of a leader, and the, the, the way in which a leader communicates and how she or he behaves. Mm. And what way does it shape the secret life of a leader? That, that's an interesting phrase that you use there. Expand on that for me. Well, I, I, think, I think you can only lead people as far publicly as you have gone with God privately. Mm. Um, and um, contrary to popular ideas often of leadership around um, charisma or gifts and abilities and capacities, mm. whilst I accept that all of those are important things, many of them can be um, learned or can be given at another date. Character is a lifelong pursuit of formation. Mm. And for me, the leader that succeeds or prospers, might be a better word, has at her or his heart a life of integrity, when integrity means singularity of purpose. So there's no disparity between the inside of your life and the outside of your life. And scripture for me shapes the inside of my life. And that works its way out by the power of the Holy Spirit to the outside of my life. And therefore, as I steep myself in the, re the real story of human flourishing found in scripture, the real purpose of God for the world, which is to overcome evil and sin and to establish his kingdom and the real definitions and characteristics of what it means to be human, I discover a resource deeper than the deepest ocean and stronger than Niagara Falls. And if I don't plug myself into that and allow it to shape me, then I'm missing the most important alongside the power and presence of the Holy Spirit resource. And scripture shapes all of that in me. It shapes my understanding of myself. It shapes my understanding of where I'm going. It shapes my understanding of the people I'm working with. And it shapes my understanding of how I relate to them and enable them to flourish. And if I can allow scripture to do that, then surely it must have a central place in my understanding of leadership formation. Mm, that's really interesting. One of the formative times for me was studying at Fuller Seminary and and just the them talking to us about the capacity ladder and the character ladder and how all of the development in corporates and big businesses tends to go into the capacity development, but actually it's the character development which is overlooked and, and that sense of leading out of who you are and leading out of being and leading out of a deep sense of personhood um, is vitally important to a leader. So it's fascinating to hear you uh, talk about that. How do you actually apply scripture though in specific leadership contexts? You know, how do you take scripture and apply it in, in the work that you're doing? Do you have ways that that you do that specifically in your leadership? Yeah, I do. Um, so um, I have my own uh, personal philosophy of ministry, which is shaped and rooted deeply in scripture, particularly some of uh, Paul's instructions to Timothy in terms of character formation and car choices that I make. I want to keep in step with the spirit and therefore believing that the Holy Spirit never contradicts the scriptures and to keep in step with the Spirit is to live in accordance with the Scripture. And therefore, the, the fruit of the Spirit, for example, 
found in the book of Galatians, love, joy, peace, gentleness, long-suffering, meekness, all of those things um, are very important aspects of leadership for me. And then um, within the context of my own purpose, in whatever context it might be, I'll seek to root it in the clarity of God's overarching purpose. So I, because I'm a follower of Jesus, whether I lead a church as I do now, a movement as I do now, or something beyond the context of the kingdom of God in um, obvious terms, my own leadership must be rooted deeply in the overarching purposes of God. So whatever leadership role I'm asked to take on, if I sense it's right, I will draw that leadership role back into scripture to help me to shape what my contribution to that thing might be. Even if the people around me are not Christians, I can still exercise godly leadership by being clear about what God is asking me to do. And I find the story and the, the parameter of that in the Bible. So for example, here in Gold Hill, obviously it's easier because it's a Christian church. And yeah. as long as my leadership is here, our general direction is rooted in the Great Commission. Our overarching purpose is rooted in the mission of God in the world. Our core values are rooted in the values of the New Testament community and the people of God. And therefore, we have a whole framework around which we can work that makes sure that we are rooted in Scripture. Because to be rooted in Scripture means for me to be rooted in the purposes of God. In a non-Christian context, the question that I would ask of Scripture is, how do I bring godly leadership? How do I enable people in the way that Jesus did? If I'm working with a disparate group of people, I go back to Jesus and how he handled the first 12 apostles. If I'm dealing with conflict, I will read Acts 6 and see the wisdom of that. If I'm dealing with unresolved issues, I will reflect on the story of Solomon and his command to have a baby cut in two to expose right and wrong heart. If there are hidden agendas in the leadership context that I'm dealing with, I will reflect on the epistle of Jude and the five images of leadership and what happens when they go wrong that he uses. So it's always rooted for me in scripture. But I think that's because I'm a theologian as well as a missiologist and a leader. Yeah, I, it was very interesting. I was with an um, executive coach a few weeks back and she was saying how she was coaching executives in, in large corporates and, and businesses. And she would always pray before she went into that situation and ask for wisdom from God. And often a scripture would come and then she would share that. And it would often be from the wisdom literature, um, from Proverbs, but, but how she would share that into a non-Christian context and how powerful that actually was to take the you know foundational word of god that has been there for centuries and actually to see people just eyes open at how applicable that was to their current scenario and current situation and what a great witness that is as a christian it depends it depends how you define that term but for me to be a follower of jesus christ means that every aspect of my life every decision i make every part of who i am is shaped by that i can i can no more um put my Christian faith to one side then I can put my Irishness to one side or my maleness to one side or or my marriedness to one side when I when you invite Malcolm Duncan into a situation you're inviting the whole me as a leader the leaders that are least effective are those leaders that have disconnected their leadership and their public life from the core convictions of who they are when you do that, you end up in scenarios like Robert Maxwell or others who make huge mistakes 
because yeah. they've they've separated out who they are from what they do as a leader, and I I can't do that. Do you think that there's a crisis of identity in leaders? Today? I do, I do, but I I think it's an interesting um, observation. I think in one sense we are watching the non-Christian um, culture around us return to principles of leadership that are deeply Christian. So mm. the age of the singularly minded, I will tell you what to do and you will do it CEO, I think has gone. Yeah. Leadership in isolation, leadership for results only, leadership driven only by the top line. I think that is collapsing like a, a deck of cards around us because Firstly, it isn't sustainable. And secondly, it doesn't achieve as much. You know, it's that old analogy of a goose flying on its own can fly for 15 miles, but flying in formation can fly much further. And I think the crisis of leadership that we are seeing in our culture is partly because people are afraid of confrontation, partly because they've allowed popularity to be more important than purposefulness, and partly because we are experiencing post the Second World War as our cultures change, particularly in Europe and North America, increasingly quickly, a collapse of one worldview with nothing to replace it. So leaders lead out of their worldview. But when your worldview itself collapses as quickly as they're collapsing now, the leader that, for example, came into a political institution or a business in 2007 in the United Kingdom would have been knocked sideways in 2008 would have just been getting on their feet again when in 2016 we made the Brexit decision and now they're having to reform their leadership again and again and again. And I think that creates a crisis of confidence because there's a crisis in culture about confidence uh, because we've lifted the boundary in what is right and what is wrong and therefore you throw people into an open field and they don't know where to go. Yeah, I certainly find in my work that um, leaders who have a deep sense of their own identity and are able to articulate their values and beliefs um, are able to lead much more effectively, actually, because they're the solid rock in the midst of a storm. Exactly. Yeah, they are the clear principled people who lead people into God's purposes for them in the midst of, of, of crises. And in one sense, they're not trying to prove anything, are they? If you're not trying to prove who you are, then you can lead with confidence. It's one of the reasons I have this adage that I use, and I've had to use it on a number of occasions. And that is this, I can only lead you as far as you will permit me to lead you. But at the point where your vision or, or aspiration of the pathway ahead diverges significantly from my vision of the pathway ahead, that's the moment at which my leadership for you becomes defunct. And you have to release me and I have to release you. And, and leadership hits crisis when the leader is one sort of person wanting to go in one direction and the people that they're trying to lead or the community that they're trying to lead doesn't want to go that way. That's the point at which you have to work out, do I stay to see the culture changed or do I move because I've taken the culture as far as I can take it? And leaders have to wrestle with that pretty regularly, I think. And so do the communities that they lead, because we often assume that when a leader comes, they come to stay forever. But actually, there's a there's a real challenge about that mutuality of relationship and leadership and followership that needs to be explored much more. Malcolm, we all hit times of challenge in our own leadership. And uh, what, what have you learned through your leadership experience that you wish someone had talked to you about in college and, uh, and prepared you 
for you know or in other words you know what is it you think is lacking from the way we're developing leaders today one sense for me would be we must first help leaders to understand that they are not the answer um, in and of themselves particularly christian leaders but that their leadership must be grounded in another so before you can be a good leader you have to be a good follower and that there's a sense in which followership being taught within the context of leadership sounds almost like an oxymoron but it's vital secondly i think that to be a good leader one must have a set of people around you who can tell you the truth who you're willing to listen to and who you're willing to give time to and who you will let shape you and you allow them the possibility of speaking into the very centre of your life. That's vitally important too. So those two things, I think, would be important for me. And recognise that when somebody tries to critique you, they're not trying to hurt you, they're trying to help you. Look for the good in the critique that you hear and build on it. And that requires a strong sense of identity as well, doesn't it? To be able to take that and reflect on it and and realise that, you know, it's not personal, but actually people are often trying to help and often trying to to shape you and if you can lead out of who you are in Christ and your identity in Christ then that shaping can happen all the more easily yes I think so I mean somebody said to me years ago I was in Scotland and um, I went into a a bookshop I used to spend well I still do spend my life in bookshops but second hand (laughs) bookshop and this old man working in it uh, heard that I was about to be part of planting a new church and he said to me Malcolm imagine that I have given you um a big bottle full of gold coins. Uh, He said, that's how you will start your new rule. And every time you do something right, you will put one gold coin into the bottle, which is already full. Every time you do something wrong, you will take three gold coins out of it. (laughs) If at the end of your time, there are gold coins in the bottle, you are a successful leader. And I think that's a really powerful and helpful image. The impact of getting it wrong is much greater than the impact of getting it right. So we have to allow that as we lead people and make sure that we're humble enough to hear what people are saying to us. There would be lots of people listening to this who are just starting out on their leadership journey who don't have the benefit of the experience of... 20, 30 years of leadership. What, what, what advice would you have to young millennials who are just getting their first leadership role, maybe just starting out in church leadership or, or in corporate leadership or in the third sector? Um, what would be the one thing that you would say to them to encourage them, um, but maybe one thing they need to focus on as well? I would encourage them to learn the benefits of this is going to sound like an odd answer to your question Simon but I would encourage them to learn the benefits of loyalty and honesty you cannot lead well if your default is all you ever do is undermine the people that are leading you if you can harness it rather than let it go unbridled and work it out in loyalty with people then you will be a better leader and you will feel frustrated, it will drive you mad, but you'll be a better leader as a result. There is never an excuse for rebellion. So I would say to the young leader, because I mean, you know, I oft, I was 47 just a little while ago and I often think, what would I say to my 21 year old self? 
And I would say to my 21-year-old self, never forget the importance of faithfulness, of, of loyalty and allowing your passion and your energy and your desire to see something change be harnessed rather than become this roughshod wave that breaks on the shore and can destroy people's lives. Um, and, and that for me is deeply rooted in character. Learn that your leadership is only as strong as your character is. And if you embed in your heart, I am going to be a loyal person, it really does make you a better leader. I'd share that with you as well. I think some of the most formative times in my own leadership have been those days when something has gone horribly wrong and I've had to pick myself up and walk back into the office the following morning and talk about it, uh, knowing that I'm going to stick this out actually rather than, than walk away from it. And, and and actually, as I look back at those times, those have been the times that have really shaped me yeah. as a leader and where God has done his deepest work in me and, yet, um, and in my character and yet, as well. And yet the truth is, Simon, you and I both know that, and this is not to negate what I've just said, but I think one of the hardest decisions for a leader to make is the decision about when it's right to go. And I think it is right to go sometimes. It has to be. Yeah. And I think my experience has been that we normally leave it a bit too late. Mm. We normally think we can work it out a bit more or we can go a bit further. I wonder sometimes if that's a, a sense of pride or if it's a sense of not wanting to appear to have failed or an overinflated sense of our own importance or fear because all of us get comfortable with leadership. We have a good salary, we have a good role, we have good um, publicity, we've, we're well known, whatever it might be. But fundamentally, and here's the thing that I really think, you know, I, I never want to lose this uh, awareness of the inner Malcolm Duncan, who is still the 16-year-old Christian born and brought up in a council estate, who is naive enough to believe that we can change the world, is foolish enough to try and is passionate enough never to give up. And I, I want that to, I want that to... I want that to be my dying characteristic, not just one that I look back on 30 years ago and say, do you remember when you could take a risk? Do you remember when you felt there was nothing to lose? Well, really, I still want there to be a willingness to take a risk. I still want to remember that there's nothing to lose. I still want to remember as a leader that it's worth having a go. That's fantastic. Malcolm, thank you so much for joining us today and really appreciate your openness and honesty and I've loved what you've brought out about character in leadership and identity in leadership and loyalty and also, you know, just commitment to making a difference. And uh, thank you so much for joining us uh, today and wish, wish you all the best thank you, Simon. in your future ministry. Thank you, Malcolm. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to that interview. There is a new podcast released every Monday morning. Go to www.forge-leadership.com for more information.